All right. Yeah, look, we are continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah, as Lucy just mentioned. Uh, We're now in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, believe it or not. It has been a wild ride uh, through this book, hasn't it? I, just having spent a lot of time reading Nehemiah recently over the last few weeks, months, I can't help but get the feel that Nehemiah would make an awesome Netflix series with the amount of, like, backstabbing, political intrigue, uh, the, like the action scenes, the, uh, you know, the, the, the courage, the assassination attempts, the betrayal. It would just make a good, good Netflix series. Um, go on, Netflix. They would, they would ruin it so bad. Maybe they should not do that. Um, let me pray for us just once more uh, before we jump in. Uh, Father, we... Lord, there are, there are such treasures to find now in your word. Such treasures. And so I ask that we would be able to see them for what they are by a Holy Spirit's power. Open up our eyes and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Way back in, uh, on September 30th, 1938, uh, the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, came back from meeting Hitler, having just had this landmark discussion uh, with the, the German Chancellor, and uh, reached an agreement, assuring peace for their time. This is what he had to say. He said, this morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, and here is the paper which bears his name upon it, as well as mine. We regard the, this is, the, this is what it says on the piece of paper, we regard the agreement signed last night as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. 1938. He said this later that day, outside Downing Street. My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British Prime Minister has returned from Germany, bringing peace with honour. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of, your, of our hearts. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. 1938. What, what had happened that day with Mr. Hitler is he, with his right hand, signed a peace agreement assuring peace for our time. And with his left hand, he was building an epic German war machine that would very effectively wage war on most of Europe for the coming years. The very next year after this peace agreement was signed, Hitler would invade Poland, kicking off what is now known as World War II. And with a sh- few, within a few short years, 50 to 56 million people would die in war, with an extra 19 to 28 million people dying of war-related disease, famine, etc. Peace for our time, (laughs) is what the Prime Minister declared so confidently. Peace for our time. And with some degree of hindsight, sitting here now, we can see just how naive he was. Well, turns out, naivety is a dangerous trait to have if you are a leader navigating dangerous waters. Turns out it takes a degree of shrewdness to navigate those kind of times. Nehemiah, in the book of Nehemiah, is a great example of what it looks like for a man faithful to God to navigate trials, oppositions, all sorts of difficulty with shrewdness, faithfulness, and yet shrewdness. 
And so if you're joining with us today, and this is your first week in, the, in our series, we've been in Nehemiah for like five or six weeks now. Uh, so you're, you're kind of like, you're landing in the middle of a, of a big series, and so you've missed what's been going on. So let me just give you a little bit of the story so far. So far, God has sent this man, Nehemiah, from the inner circle of the Persian emperor, uh, King Artaxerxes, in the Persian capital of Susa, sent him, sent Nehemiah, over to Jerusalem in order to restore the city that had been laying in ruins for years and years and years, about 150 years. And in particular, his mission is to, is to restore the walls, because without a wall around an ancient city, it's, you can't have the basics of, of, of society and life in a city. And so Nehemiah has arrived in the city, and he's led this heroic building campaign, and everything has gone wrong. It has been just one thing after the other. He's had persistent opposition from within and from without. It's been a disaster. The, uh, the power plays in that region were, from day one, opposing him, sabotaging him, undermining him at every single step. They used every single trick in the book, intimidation, threats, all sorts of things. And so Nehemiah kind of goes from like a, you know, an engineering kind of project manager type person to like an army general type person, placing troops around the city strategically, telling them to make sure you've got your tool in your one hand, but you've got your, your sword in the other, just in case you get attacked while you're building the wall. And so he's at one moment, back in chapter four, he has this awesome William Wallace kind of speech moment. It's so good, where he tells the people building the wall to fight, fight for their kids, fight for their wives, fight for their homes. It's got this real kind of, yeah, William Wallace quality to it. It's been a pretty epic series. So what today we're going to do is we're going to be picking up the, the action, chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can crack it open to chapter 6, and we're going to be picking it up from there. And verse 1, here we go again. Now, when Sanballat and Tobiah, guys, these guys are back. When Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab as well, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not yet set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at that place, in the plain of... Oh, no. Don't you hate these guys? We hate these guys by now. It's just them every single time. It's them again now. And it says, Nehemiah, right? They intended to do me harm. So it sounds like, just on the surface, a friendly invitation for collaboration, for discussion. We're the governor of the north. You're the governor in, in Jerusalem. Let's meet on neutral territory and, 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 and talk about this, all these issues that we're having together uh, at, a, at this neutral location on the plains of Oh No, aptly named. Unlike Mr. Chamberlain sitting down with Hitler, right? Nehemiah sees right through this. <laughs> He sees right through their false intentions for discussion. He knows this is a trap, pure and simple. And so he says, no way, Jose. Um, he spoke Spanish. Um, and I sent messages to them saying, look at this. I love his response so much. What does he say? He says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Not shouldn't come down. I can't. I can't come down. Why should I stop? Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Don't you love this guy? <laughs> he knows that he has a task. He knows exactly what he's about. 
He knows exactly what God has called him to. And so because of that, it's not just a task for him. What is it? It's a great work. The Lord has given me this great work. And so he knows that there's no way he's going down. And so he's just black and white. There's no way I'm going down to be lured away by anything. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Don't care what you say. I'm busy. Guys, I'm busy. I've got things to do. The Lord has given me a job. I am low-key thinking about pulling this one out on the kids when I'm cooking and they ask for a toy that they can't find. Where's, where's, my, where's my zebra? Guys, I'm doing great work. I cannot come down. These meatballs are going to rock your world. I'm doing a great work. Feel free to keep that one as well, by the way, parents. That'll come in handy, I'm sure. So how, how is it, Nehemiah, this first scheme of deception and distraction, how, how is it that Nehemiah navigates this first scheme? We're going to see like three or four schemes today. This is the first one. How does he combat it? He has a clarity and conviction of purpose. He knows what is number one priority in his life, and he is not getting off task at all for anything. He has this laser-like focus on what he's about, what his mission is, what is most important, everything else for him, peripheral. Laser-like focus. He knew exactly when to say, oh no, to oh no. So let me ask you, do you know what you're doing? Not like right now. You know what you're doing right now. You're sitting down listening to me. Do you know what you're doing? Do you know what it is the Lord has called you to? Do you have the same kind of clarity and conviction of purpose in your life? Many in our world are living on a starvation diet of purpose. Do you know what a starvation diet is? It's like when you eat just enough to survive for like maybe today, but probably not for a week from now. It's a, it's a slow execution. Many in our society today, in, in severing themselves from their creator, they have also severed themselves from any kind of transcendent source of purpose. Which means no one knows what they're here for anymore. No one has any clue what to do with their lives. We're dying from pure pointlessness. I mean, look around. Is that not this culture that we have found ourselves in? The English writer Dorothy Sayers would say it so well of her generation a couple of generations ago, but it seems even more true somehow today. This is what she said. She said, the sin of our times is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, and lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. May it never be so for a child of God. May it never be so for a child of God. Friends, God has got so much more for you from, than that kind of life. The Lord has so much more for you than that kind of purposeless life. What does Jesus say? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us what ultimately our lives are for, where they should be pointed, what it is we are to do with ourselves. He teaches us to seek first the kingdom of God. First priority, laser-like focus. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given. 
Everything else comes second. Seek first the kingdom of God. That is, that is the calling of God on the lives of every Christian. Seek first the kingdom of God. And listen, in seeking first the kingdom of God, you're going to do a lot of what Nehemiah just did and say a lot of no to Ono, or even Ono to Ono, depending. You know, being an inflexible person is typically a bad thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever met like a really inflexible person. It's infuriating. Um, but being inflexible is not always a bad thing. You know, it's, it's actually good to be inflexible about the right thing. Husbands, be inflexible about, about uh, which woman you call beautiful, for example, if you get my drift. Your wife, that's the one, that's the one. Maybe your daughters. <laughs> it's good to be inflexible about the right thing, right? Nehemiah here is inflexible because he had this uncompromising determination to stay the course, to honor God, to seek the good of the city. He was not getting distracted by all these other stuff. And so he'd, he'd worked out his priorities. He knew what, what the big rocks in his life were, so to speak. And his life was built around those things. In the same way, friends, we must build our life around really being our first priorities first, but also being willing to say no to all that other stuff. We've got to get good at saying no. No to distraction. No to worldliness. No to self-centeredness. No to um, mission drift, no to greed, no to all these things that are just going to get in the way and take us off course. And you know what? To be honest, living a godly life involves a lot of saying no. It really does. No to temptation, no to sin. To say yes to the wrong thing is to say no to the right thing. So we've got to get good at saying no, like Nehemiah did. And so can I just ask you straight up, where in your life do you actually need to just draw a line and give a hard no because you have something more important to say yes to? What's the most important thing in your life today? What needs your yes and what, because of that, also needs your no? Friends, to say yes to materialism, to say yes to that, to give your lives to that, is utter foolishness. To chase money, to chase promotions, to chase the house at the expense of the kingdom of God. It's foolishness. Jesus says you can only serve one. You can't serve God and money. Pick one. You can't do both. So many people have shipwrecked their faith in chasing riches. Say, like Nehemiah, no, I'm doing great work. I can't come down. I can't come down onto the plains of materialism. Likewise, to say yes to comfort, whatever that looks like for you, that kind of self-centered existence, inward-looking, just kind of protecting your patch, making sure you're all good at the expense of everyone else around you, at the expense of the kingdom of God. It's foolishness. Protecting your patch with that reference to the kingdom of God is utter foolishness. We will all give an account to God for how it is we live our lives. We'll all give an account, both the good and the bad. And so, say no. Say no. I'm doing great work. I cannot come down to the plains of comfort, self-centeredness, laziness, self, selfishness. He says next, they sent to me four times like this. Verse 4, 
They sent to me four times, and I answered them in the exact same manner. I love that. This email is going back and forwards. Exact same response every time. Doing great work, can't come down. No, Nehemiah, come down. Planes of Ono. Doing great work, can't come down. Four times. This is persistence. This is another four times. That's five times. Friends, don't get worn down. As long as you're living on this earth, you will be tempted to put down the mission of God and to go do your own thing. Don't get distracted. Remember your calling. Don't put down that sword. Don't put down that trowel. Keep your eyes on the work and keep your eyes on your Savior. Seek first the kingdom of God. This is the, the first scheme, deception and distraction. In verse 5, we're going to see the next scheme. They change tact pretty dramatically, and we'll see it now. The first scheme, deception, distraction. The second scheme, threats and intimidation. They up the ante a little bit here, verse 5. In the same way, Sambalet set for a fifth time, a fifth letter, his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Automatically, alarm bells should be ringing. Open letter. This is, they posted this on the community page. Uh, this is so doing the rounds on Facebook. They've CCC'd, they've CC'd in the entire company, right? Everyone's getting this message. And so from the outset, as soon as Nehemiah's reading this, he's very aware that the rumor mill is at work now. This is, this is now public knowledge. It is written, and it was written, it is reported among the nations. We're, we're hearing some things, Nehemiah. We're hearing some stuff. We're hearing reports. And Geshem, Geshem also says it, so it must be true. That one guy on the internet said it, so it is true. These reports that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. Guys, this is how you get someone killed. Say that you're rebelling against the, the, the emperor of Persia. According to these reports, you wish to become their king. <laughs> and also, you've set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. that there is a king in Judah. This is commonplace. This is standard practice in the ancient world. Get yourself some false prophets saying that you're the prophesied king and you've got kind of like a religious basis for the claim. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's, that's how they did it. So we're getting these reports that you're setting up these prophets claiming that you're the king. And now the king back in Persia, you know, your friend, King Artaxerxes, the one that sent you, friend is a bit of an overstatement, but, you know, you've got a relationship with that guy. He's going to hear these reports. So come now. Let us take cancel together. Let's talk about it. This scheme is actual evil genius. There is, like, if you're, if you're an evil, evil genius, take notes. This is really good. Um, these guys are posing as both loyal to Persia, so we really care about the kingdom, the, you know, the greater kingdom of Persia, but also as like, as like a trusted friend to the Jews. And they can play the intermediary role of kind of like smoothing over the reports. We're hearing these reports. This is really dangerous for you, Nehemiah. The army might be sent and you might get crushed. You'll get, you know, hung, drawn, and quartered or whatever. So come talk to us and we'll make sure that we straighten it out with the king and that everyone's on the same page, right? They're trying to, you know, diffuse these mysterious rumors. Problem is, where are the reports coming from? It's them. <laughs> they are 100% planting these things to trying to get him killed. It's genius because it won't get traced back to them. It's just they're hearing stuff from the nations. And so they're just able to kind of generate these deadly rumors, set them free, and let them do their work. Verse 8, this is Nehemiah's response. Then I sent back to him saying, no such thing as you say has been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. 
I love this. He just straight up just like, lie. <laughs> that's it. You're making that up. That's just a lie. And that's all he says. <laughs> just, you're lying. Have you ever experienced something that comes close to this? Probably not on this level of like, you're going to get killed by the emperor of Persia. <laughs> but have you ever been slandered? Wrongfully slandered and accused of something you've never done? Called all sorts of names, maybe, because of your faith? Have you been called a bigot yet? Well, living in 2023, it's going to happen. Get ready for it. What does Jesus tell us? Jesus says some pretty exciting things. And this, I find both bemusing and comforting. More bemusing for me. This is Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Sometimes people say things about you that are actually true. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is talking about. This is when people say things falsely against you on the account of the fact that you're following Jesus. What does Jesus say next? Rejoice and be glad. How's that? Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, part of following Jesus is accepting the fact that you're going to get called names and you're going to be wrongfully slandered. Jesus says, rejoice. Be glad about that. You're building up treasures in heaven. There's going to be a reward for that day. Nehemiah goes on in verse 9. He says, they wanted to frighten us. He knows this is a scare campaign. He knows that. They want to frighten us. And they were thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So if we can frighten them enough, they'll get scared and retreat into their homes and they'll give up the work because they don't want to get be seen to be opposing the emperor of Persia. And so Nehemiah knows all of that. And so he finishes with a prayer. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. What do we do when we're faced with these kinds of slander and false accusations against us? Two things. Firstly, Jesus tells us, rejoice, be glad. That's hard. <laughs> Let's agree that that's hard. Why? Because our reward is great in heaven. What Jesus is telling us is that faithfulness here under pressure, faithfulness when it's hard, is actually storing up treasures in heaven. So rejoice, keep going. Keep going. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Keep the course. Keep going. The second thing that we, we learn here is from Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah do? He prays. He prays specifically for strength. I love how all the way through the book of Nehemiah, you get these tiny little one-sentence prayers like this, just the whole way through. He's constantly just turning to God. Lord, strengthen me again. I need you again. Lord, I need you again. Strengthen my hands. Lord, it's hard. It's really hard. I need you again. Lord, give me your strength. Give me your strength again and again and again. He's praying for strength. So friends, rejoice and pray. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. They treated him worse. And no, no, uh, no disciple is above his master. No servant is above his master. So if we follow him, they killed him. Let's get ready to experience some opposition in that way. The first scheme, deception and distraction. Second one, threat and intimidation. The third one, trickery and manipulation. It just keeps going. Like, it just keeps getting worse somehow. Now, 
now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, okay, um, who was confined to his home. So we don't know why, but this guy's in his home. He's confined there. He's a prophet. We don't know why. Maybe it's one of those like prophetic actions where he's stuck in his home. Don't know why he's, he's, he's confined to his home. Maybe he's sick. We're not told. Anyway, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Seriously, at this point, Nehemiah's got to be like, you serious? Like, this just does not end. Who do they think I am? They're sending contract killers after me? Do they think I'm Jason Bourne? Like, what is, I'm a cupbearer. <laughs> I'm an admin guy. Um, and they're sending contract killers after me. You just like, this poor guy, right? And so that's the level of threat Nehemiah is finding himself in. No longer like the armies, but like assassins. And so this guy's like, look, Nehemiah, this is dangerous. You can't just stay in your own house. You never know who's going to try poison you or kill you. They really want to get rid of you, obviously. You're the, you're the head guy. You're the leader. So they're, they're targeting you now. So why don't you lock yourself in the temple? I'll come too. We'll lock ourselves in and you'll be safe, at least, until all this blows over. Which is a great plan, except it wasn't a great plan because God's law explicitly forbade it because he's not a priest. Again, look at our boy Nehemiah and his response. The shrewdness on this guy. But I said, oh, don't you love this? Watch this. But I said, should such a man as I run away? What guts? Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. First he said, I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work. Now he's saying, I won't go in. I won't run away. I'm not going to break God's law. I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to stand my ground. Let him come. Don't we love him? For Nehemiah, he would literally rather be assassinated than hide and run and break God's law. It's just not an option for him. He's just taking it off the table. This, guys, this is a man of courage. This is a man of principle. He's a flawed man. We see him get some things wrong, I think, later on in the book. But he is a man worthy of our imitation. In our age of compromise and easy outs, isn't it great to see someone stand up and say, I'm not going to do what's easy, I'm going to do what's right. We need more of that in our world. We need God to give us more of that. Fathers, don't you want to model to your kids this same kind of courage and conviction and principle? Do you want to show your kids what it looks like to be a man of God who fears God and nothing else? Lord, give us that kind of courage. By God's grace, let us be people of moral backbone. Moral backbone. Let us show our sons and daughters and those around us what it looks like to honor God when it's difficult, when it's really difficult. Verse 12. I understood... This is Nehemiah after that conversation, after he said, I'm not going to go in, I'm not going to run away. I'm standing my ground, let him come. He said, and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. 
but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. Do you know there's a, a special place in hell for people who speak in the name of God falsely? Don't do it. <laughs> Don't listen to them. It is blasphemy to speak in the name of God falsely. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way, run into the temple and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. They wanted him to commit this kind of obvious sin that they could then point to and be like, Nehemiah has compromised himself. He's gone into the temple. He's not a priest. They're trying trying to ruin his reputation. It's a trick. False prophets. You know, this guy's being paid to say all kinds of things in the name of God. Again, (laughs) this is a live problem today. You You can throw a stone and hit a TV preacher speaking all kinds of things in the name of God, holding the Bible as they speak, closed, but shaking it around. Do you know what I mean? They dress it up in all kinds of hyper-spiritual language. They're selling snake oil. Not every single preacher on the TV, let me just say that to be, to be clear. There's enough of them, though. There is. So, friends, don't... Don't be naive... Don't be naive. Be alert. Stay awake to the false intentions of these clans that are getting paid lots of money to tell you that you'll get rich if you just give more money to them. Don't do it. Stay awake to that, the false intentions, financially motivated intentions of some of these people. He finishes here in verse 14. He says, remember to buy and sample it. Oh my God, this is a prayer. He's committing these guys in prayer the Lord. Remember Tobiah and Sambler, oh my God, according to these things that they have done. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, we don't know what she did, but she makes the list here. And the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. I kind of love here that he doesn't call down hellfire on them, and he doesn't freak out. He just, he just commits them to the Lord's justice. Because Lord, please deal with those guys, they're the worst. <laughs> it's like he doesn't trust himself because he knows that he would probably go further than the Lord would. Uh, he just commits them to the Lord's justice. Lord, remember them. Remember what they've done to me. Sometimes that's the only prayer you need to pray. <laughs> and then we get this final amazing sentence. Verse 15, guys, we made it. Do you know what verse 15 says? Do I have it on the screen? So the war was finished. Hooray. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> like we did it, yeah. Oh, that was so much, so much labor in the desert building that wall. It was finished on the 25th day of the month of... Elul, in 52 days. What a miracle of God. They did it. I love how, like, again, just how classically understated this is. This, for a lot of the book, this looks like never happening. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, yeah, we did it. (laughs) It's so great. If this was today, right, there would be a social media campaign. There'd be some hashtags, you know, hashtags 52 days. Hashtag haters gonna hate. Hashtag... Shake it off. Hashtag, build it and they will come. Hashtag, uh, what's your wall? Um, Etc. <laughs> There's none of that. It's just, we finished. Hooray. Um, but then what he says is great. When our enemies heard, when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. And they fell greatly in their own esteem. I love that turn of phrase. They fell in their own esteem. 
their, their opinion of themselves came down a few clicks. <laughs> Why? For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. There was, a, there was a moment where it was clear to even the enemies of this project that the Lord had done this, that he had really been the one. This is a miracle. They'd just seen a miracle in front of their eyes, and so they were a bit more humbled <laughs> about what was happening. Um, I love the way that Hudson Taylor, the, the British Baptist missionary to mainland China, would say it. He said, there are three stages to every great work of God. And I think you see that in Nehemiah. The first one, first, it's impossible. It's just not possible. Second, it's difficult. Then it is done. Work of God goes from being impossible to really hard to, oh, it's done. Yeah, that's a miracle of God, right? I love that. Verse 17. Only a few more verses, guys. <laughs> it just keeps getting worse. It just keeps going. I don't know how. It just it should be over by now. Verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many lesson, letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. Listen. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ariah. And his son Jehoahan and had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. The final scheme, mail, apparently, as in like letters. It finally comes out, finally comes out all this way into the book, that this Tobiah character has married in to the Jewish nobility. And he had this, like, these, these people under oath to him to be on his side. He'd, he would, this whole time, there was this powerful block within the, the Jewish nobility and the rich who were opposing Nehemiah the whole time, conspiring with his enemy, sending him his letters, keeping him in the loop, reporting Nehemiah's words back to him so that he, was, he knew how to attack Nehemiah this whole time. Isn't that just the worst? <laughs> I can't believe that's the case. They're, apparently, they're keeping the postal service in business as well in Jerusalem. Uh, lots of letters going around. Um, that's where we'll stop today because the story just keeps going, but we'll press pause then. We'll pick it up next week. Uh, but the wall is now complete. Praise the Lord for that. But as we're about to see at the start of chapter 7, there's lots more to do. Verse 7. I don't have it here, but it says, uh, verse 4 of chapter 7 says that the city was wide... The walls are finished. No one was there. No one lived there. They need to actually resettle the city. That's another big project that we're coming up to in a second. Um, and we're only halfway through the book, so there's still plenty more to come. Um, so look, as we think about this, this chapter in the book of Nehemiah, there's, there's so much to be encouraged by, isn't there? As we sit and watch, uh, watch this faithful man live out his convictions in the world, it gives me courage. I hope it gives you courage as well. You know, we, we can be encouraged by Nehemiah's laser focus, the way he, he um, goes after God's task at the expense of everything else. And we can remember for ourselves, right, God's call on our lives into that same kind of clarity of conviction, that same kind of purpose, that same kind of seek first the kingdom, everything else will come second. We can be encouraged by Nehemiah's moral courage as well in the face of all kinds of threats and intimidation which again reminds us to stand firm, to say no to compromise, 
to run the race well for the glory of God. And of course, we can be encouraged by just his endurance under all this kinds of opposition coming out of the woodwork. It's exhausting just to read that. can't imagine Nehemiah's experience of, of these things, right? But that reminds us again to be faithfully, to faithfully persevere through the hard stuff of this life. We don't have an easy life either. This world is all full of all kinds of brokenness. We all have to navigate that faithfully. But ultimately, as much as we can be encouraged by the example of Nehemiah, we need more than just a good example. We need, we need more than just a good example. Why? A good example can only get us so far. Because our deepest problem is not just that we don't know how to live, but that even when we know, we fail to do it. Seeing Nehemiah goes, okay, next time I'll be brave. It's like, yeah, what about all those times that I'm not brave? <laughs> and I know that I should be. Do you know what we need more than an example? We need a saviour. We need a saviour. Friends, Matt said it really well last week. Nehemiah points us at Jesus. Jesus is the true and better, to coin a phrase, from, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from Tim Keller, the true and better Nehemiah. You know, he is our steadfast leader. He's not a mere man. He's the savior of the world. He's not just a man of courage. He's the savior of the world. He is the great rebuilder of all that is broken. He's building his eternal kingdom as I speak. Like Nehemiah, he too came from the right hand of the king, a place of privilege and ease, and he came down to rescue us. Like Nehemiah, he, he wept bitterly over the brokenness of Jerusalem. He wept bitterly over Jerusalem, and he worked for its restoration at cost to himself. Like Nehemiah, he too was wrongly accused and slandered by his enemies all the time. All kinds of evil was spoken against him. They claimed he was possessed by the devil. Like Nehemiah, he was undermined and betrayed. He was sold to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. Like Nehemiah, he was encouraged to take the easy way out and compromise. Peter didn't even know what he was saying. Lord, don't go to the cross. <laughs> Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He could recognize in the words of Peter that this was a demonic ploy to get him to take the easy way out. He refused to run away. Will such a man as I run away? I will not run. Like Nehemiah, he was a cupbearer. He was willing to face death as he took that cup. You know, in the garden, Jesus cried out, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know, this, this idea of the cup in the Old Testament comes from the Old Testament prophets, and it represents God's wrath against sin, God's just punishment for evil in this world. And the cup that was sitting on the proverbial table in front of, in front of Jesus was not the cup full of wrath for his sin, but the sin for the whole world. 1 John 2, 2 says that he is the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sin and not for ours only 
but also for the sins of the whole world. Friends, Jesus came to rescue us and to drink our cup on our behalf so that we would never have to. He drank it to the dregs. Like Nehemiah, he was encouraged to, to come down from his great work. As he was on the cross, they taunted him saying this. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They looked at him on the cross and said, come down, Jesus. I wonder in that moment, as Jesus was dying for the sin of the world, and he heard that, come down, whether the words of Nehemiah didn't go through his head. No, I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. I am doing a great work. Friend, that great work that Jesus did on that cross is for you. It's for your sin. It's for your blessing. So that you might not ever take the cup. It's yours freely. You can take it today. That you might receive grace, forgiveness, life, eternal life in the name of Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer now. Father, thank you for that great work. That great work that you did on that cross, Lord, as you drank that cup for us. Lord, we thank you that you had the endurance to walk through those trials. That you bore our shame and our guilt. You bore the reproach. Lord, and you would not come down. Lord, you had legions of army of angels at your call, and you would not come down. For you were doing a great work. Lord, and it is that great work that rescues us, saves us, Lord. Rescues us from our sin, rescues us from death. rescues us from the future that we had built for ourselves. Lord, you had so much better for us. You gave us a new future. Future with you. So Lord, we thank you for that great gift, Lord. And I just want to pray now for everyone in this room, every single one of us, Lord. Would we see with fresh eyes the great Savior that you are? Fill our hearts with, with new love, new worship. Lord, and I pray for those in this room, Lord, who are, who are yet to hand themselves over to you, Lord. Pray today that they would see, see the glory of your gospel, the goodness of your character, that you are to be trusted. Lord, that you have good for them. Because you died for them. Lord, as we walk out our lives in this world, Lord, we, we know we'll 
face opposition. We'll face slander. We'll face compromise. All these things. Would you give us that laser focus, clarity of purpose? Would you give us moral backbone to stand up for what is right, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard? Would we fear nothing in this world? But would we fear you? Not in terror, Lord, but with reverent awe. So Lord, strengthen our hands. Strengthen us for the good work. Go with us, Lord, we pray. Thank you for your presence here today. And would you continue to, to minister to us as we sing. Lord, would you receive our praise. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.